Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 20. So Luke chapter 10, starting verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will, be, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Father, let me pray. Father, let me ask that you would work in us. We ask that you would apply your word to our hearts, that you would illumine our minds so that we would see the truth of your word. We rejoice in it. We repent before it. Father, you've sent not only your apostles into the world to proclaim the kingdom, but you've sent ordinary, nondescript, unnamed, anonymous disciples, people who are just followers of you, to make your son known where he is not known. Father, we know that includes us as your followers, that you've put your spirit within us, you've made us all prophet, priests, and kings, and that as such, we are as prophets to proclaim the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God to men from every tribe and tongue and nation so that people would be saved throughout this earth for the glory of your Son. We pray we'd understand that we are sent ones as well and that we would be faithful to what you've given us to do. For the sake of your Son's name we pray. 
Amen. How many of you, now this is a time of honesty, and please don't raise your hand because I'm not trying to embarrass you here. Okay, this, is, this is something I want you to just think about internally. How many of you have shared the gospel, in other words, told someone about Jesus and the fact that Jesus has saved you and that Jesus alone saves, what his work is, etc.? How many of you have done that with a friend or a family member or a co-worker or a neighbor in the last week? How many of you have done that in the last week? How many of you have done it in the last month? How about in the last year? Maybe I should take it further. How many of you have ever done it? How many of you are regularly praying for God to save those you know? To save people among unreached people groups? To raise up more workers for the harvest? How many of you see your life? Whatever your vocation is, whether that's stay-at-home mom or businessman, how many of you see your life as designed by God so that he has given you the vocation that you have, whatever it is, the neighbors you have, wherever you live, the family and friends you have, whoever they are, the money that you have, the talents that you have, the time that you have, and the interests that you have, so that you can make Jesus known to those who don't yet know him. In other words, while you may not be a full-time vocational pastor or missionary, that doesn't mean your life is to be any less directed to the purpose of making Jesus known among those who do not know him so that he receives all the glory. Do you guys know that? It isn't just vocational pastors like me who are supposed to be talking to people about Jesus, supposed to be praying for unbelievers. It's all of Christ's followers. All of our lives must be arranged around that goal, that the world might know who Jesus is and be saved so that he would receive all the glory. Now, that might look different in how it's manifested in your life than mine, but the fact is, God appoints the times and places in which men would live. You're not living in this city among the neighbors you live among with the family that you have and the friends you have with the interests that you share with the people you know, with the vocation you have among the people you work around for no reason. That's all purposeful, all designed by God so that people might know Jesus. Not so that you might be comfortable. Not so that life might be the way you want it to be. Not so that you might have lots of friends and be looked up to, so that that people might know Jesus. This is our calling as Christ followers. This is why we say as a church, that our purpose as a church, our mission, is following the Apostle Paul in Romans 5 to bring about the obedience of faith. That means that people might know and believe. They might obey the gospel call. To bring about the obedience of faith among all nations, that's ethnes, people groups. Among all people groups, every tribe and tongue and nation, for the sake of his name. Because that's our mission as Christ's church. It's our mission. So you might say if you're a business owner, well, my mission as a business owner is to be great at my business for the glory of God. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's to be great at your business for the glory of God. But it goes a step further than that. Now, while your specific business may not be in the business of proclaiming the gospel, just like 
Th that doesn't mean that because that's the case that your heart and mind isn't directed towards seeing your employees, that people you influence, people you're around, coming to know Jesus. Submission of Christ's church. Look at Luke chapter 10, verse 1. I want you to look there. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others. And, and let me just make a statement there. You may have a little footnote in your Bible where it's set by the number 2. And if you look at the bottom or the margin or wherever it is, it might say some manuscripts say 70. Why is that? There are various Greek manuscripts out there from which we pull the information together to make one Greek manuscript that we, that we accept and we translate and we get the current text that we have. And among those Greek manuscripts, there are some variations. There are variations in the text where there are some disagreements and readings. Over time, a few things have, become, have been found to be different because these manuscripts are distributed all over the known world and they're from multiple different centuries. Now, I don't have time to get into all the textual evidence for, for that, but here's what I want you to understand. What I appreciate about what our, our guys who put together the Bible do for us is that where there's a text that there's a disagreement that's substantive enough that we're not exactly sure which one is right, we actually put a footnote in there and tell you we don't know which one is right. And some people come to me and say, well, is it 70 or 72? Is there a mistake in my Bible or not? I'm not sure if I can trust the Bible if we're not sure if it's 70 or 72. Let me give you more confidence and reason to trust your Bible. When we put it together, we don't hide it from you, the fact that we're not quite sure. We just tell you. That ought to give you confidence in all the other stuff we don't mark and say we're not quite, that we don't mark say we're sure about this stuff. You ought to be confident about that because we actually tell you when we're not confident. And so here's what it says. There are 70 or 72. We don't know. I lean towards 70. Other scholars lean towards 72. And there's a whole list of reasons. I'm not going to give you them this morning because you probably don't care. Okay? But I, I want you to know it doesn't change the story or the point. Right? Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. So he takes these 70 or 72 and he sends them out. This is mimicking what's happened in Luke chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, where he called the 12, the apostles, together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And we say, that's right. That's what apostles are supposed to do. Apostles are supposed to go out and proclaim the gospel. Those guys are pastors. Those guys are missionaries. Who are these people? We don't have any of their names. They're nondescript, ordinary, unnamed, forgettable people whom Jesus is sending out. And that reference to 70 or 72 could have numerous reference in Scripture. So we see the 12 being sent out, and we go, wow, that's analogous to the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay. 12 sons, right? Okay, that's, that, that's, that's analogous. That's okay, I see that. What's the 70 about? Well, it's a likely reference, I think most likely, that this refers to or echoes the 70 elders that Moses was told would the Lord, by the Lord that they would prophesy. Look at Numbers chapter 11. Keep your hands there in Luke and look briefly at Numbers chapter 11. In Numbers chapter 11, we have the, the story of the people of Israel complaining. This is, it's a great story because you'll read it and you'll find yourself. God provides everything you ever want, then you complain that you don't have something that you, you used to have. 
right? And that's what the people do, and so God comes in and speaks to them in this. But verse 16 of Numbers 11, Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. So he's saying, I'm going to put the spirit on these other men. You will not be the only prophet of God, Moses. You will not be the only mouthpiece of God who's out proclaiming the truth of God to the people. I'm going to put some of the spirit on these other 70 men, and these other 70 men will also be prophets of God. They will also be the mouthpiece of God, speaking the truth of God to his people. And Moses goes, great. So what happens, and if you look down at verse 24, so Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Moses was not the only man speaking for the Lord now. 70 other men were speaking for the Lord with him. And a problem arises and Moses addresses it and we hear something prophetic in the way Moses addresses it and prays. Look down at verse 24. Now two men remain in that camp. The camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. And so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. Not have time to get into what all this means. I want you to focus on Moses' response and this prayer that's in his response. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Hear Moses' prayer, his desire, and it's this prophetic prayer. You guys are upset that the the Spirit's on these guys? I wish, I'm not jealous over the fact the Spirit's on them. I wish the Spirit of God were on all God's people and they would all be prophesying, i.e., they would all be speaking forth God's word. And what happens is, is that later in Israel's history, a minor prophet, we call him minor because the books are shorter, a minor prophet named Joel came along and Joel prophesied that one day the Messiah would come and Moses' prayer would be answered because the Spirit would be poured out on all flesh. All your sons and daughters will prophesy. They'll all speak the Word of God. And if you go to forward, you'll find that that gets fulfilled in the Messiah. It's fulfilled in the Messiah's ministry. So I want you to follow this. Here, here's the logic I want you to follow. Jesus calls the 70 or 72 ordinary followers to go and proclaim God's word, echoing Numbers 11. They're to go out and do this. These 70 are ordinary folks. They aren't the apostles. They're average followers of Jesus. And they're being appointed to go out two by two and make Jesus known. They're to do the, they're to be sent out in the same way the apostles were sent out. Ordinary followers were to go out and do the same work the apostles were doing. But I think Luke tells us the story because he wants to make clear that that call 
that they had, the rest of us have, to make God's word known. It isn't just the apostles, but this call comes to us, all of God's people, to make, it wasn't just the 70, but to us, to make Jesus known. Why do I pick that up? Luke also wrote the book of Acts. Go to Acts chapter 2. Briefly, in Acts chapter 2, we see the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy in Moses' prayer. As the 120 in the upper room are speaking in languages unknown to them but known to the hearers, Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. That's the crowds who wonder what's going on. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. That's 9 o'clock in the morning. That's early for anybody to be drunk. Anyway, 9 in the morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. God's spirit is poured out on all God's people so that all God's people are prophets. All God's people speak forth the word of God. Now, are we adding new revelation to where we all become authors of books of the Bible? Clearly, no. But part of prophecy is taking the word of God and applying it to people. That's prophetic. Making them known what God says. And so we are people of the book. We are people who speak forth this message, this prophetic message about Jesus to the world. We make it known to them. It's a kind of missionary call for all of us. We're all to make Jesus known to the ends of the earth. Jesus commanded the apostles and us with them, what? All authority has been given, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, all the ethnes, all the people groups. Go and make disciples of all of them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We're to do this. So as we look at this missionary call that's given to these 70 or 72 ordinary disciples. And as you wonder who this applies to you. Who this applies to. I want you to recognize it applies to you. If you're a follower of Jesus, it applies to you. This doesn't just apply to full-time missionaries. You guys hear that? I understand there are certain people like vocational pastors and missionaries who fulfill this call in a full-time sense and that you may not be one of them, but I want you to remember this passage isn't the story of Jesus' 12 apostles going out. It's the story of 70 ordinary, forgettable, unknown, nondescript followers of Jesus making him known. And like them as Christians, we are people who are sent out on mission. We're sent on the mission to make Jesus known. And this mission is to shape our everyday lives. So as we look at this, I want you to see six brief lessons, really, in the missionary evangelistic work that's to shape our lives. You ready? There are six of them. I want to go through them briefly or quickly. First, here's the first lesson that we learn from them that's to shape our evangelistic or missionary work. This is it. God's priority is prayer in our evangelistic or missionary work. Hear that? In our evangelistic or missionary work, God's priority for us is prayer. 
Look at verse 2. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. There's a big harvest. Lots of people out there in the world to be saved, but there aren't very many of you. So pray, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I'm sending you out two by two, but the first thing I want you to do, the highest priority, is that you start praying. Pray that God would raise up more of you. He's looking at these 70 or 72 people. He's looking at them and he's saying, there's not enough of you. This world's a big place. Lots of people get, need to get saved, and there isn't enough of you, so start praying. Pray that the Lord would work to raise up more people. Pray the Lord will raise up more laborers for the harvest. What's interesting is that clearly the apostles prayed this, didn't they? And clearly the 72 prayed this. And clearly the 120 who were in the upper room at Pentecost praying, waiting, clearly they were praying this. Why do I say that? Because out of Pentecost arose a church. Out of that 120 people arose a church from people who most of us can't name, who aren't recorded in history, who are unknown, ordinary, forgettable people, arose a church that has spread across the Roman Empire and throughout the world. The harvest is still plentiful, and the workers are still few. You guys know there are over a billion people in the Muslim world who do not know Jesus. Over a billion. Most of whom will hear about Jesus, they have the opportunity to hear about Jesus one time every hundred years. That means most of them will never hear about him. Never. There are very few missionaries among them. About 2% of our mission force is among Muslim people groups. 2%. If you look at the statistics, about 10% of our missions force goes out to unreached people groups at all. The other 90% stay in nice, comfortable places we all want to live for the sake of Jesus, right? That's why we need to pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. That's why we started and are part of starting Radius International, which is a ministry that Sovereign Grace had the part of starting, which trains up people in linguistics and culture and worldview analysis and cross-cultural church planning and literacy and, tr- and translation and all these things, trains them up to send them to people groups that have never heard about Jesus, to send them to the hardest to reach people groups in the world, Muslim, Hindu, and Buddhist people groups who are hostile to the gospel, in fact, or to Christians, predominantly to Americans, if we're going to be honest. And we're sending them out to reach those people groups. We ask you to pray for Radius. Pray God would raise up more students to go to Radius who will be missionaries to the nations. Pray God will raise up more faculty because we need to be praying that God would raise up workers or laborers for the harvest. We ask you to pray for Brandon Buser. We pray for him every week in here. Brandon is among the BM people. Several thousand people on a small island, never, none of them have ever heard of Jesus. Brandon is getting there. They're getting close to the New Testament in the next couple months. That's why we had the prayer cards back there to pray for them. Pick one up and pray for those people. They'd be saved, that God would open their eyes. They're on that table back there. 
But we're praying that God would work there, that as Brandon brings them the gospel, he started in Genesis, he's working the Bible story, that people would be saved. But here's the thing. Even when Brandon is done with the gospel presentation over the next several months, there's only going to be a certain number of those people that are saved because only a certain number of them even come to the presentation, which means we need to pray that God would raise up more laborers among those people who can go to the rest of the tribe in the island and tell them about Jesus. We pray that God would raise up more people around us to proclaim the gospel. You guys know how many people in Bakersfield attend an evangelical church? According to the American Religious Data Archives, about 86 to 87 percent of the people don't attend an evangelical church. Now, we think this is a really Christian town because we're at like 13 to 14 percent. Say, wow, it seems more Christian than that. Well, San Francisco is like 2 percent. Right? So we're like seven times them on a percentage basis. But still, 86 to 87% of all the people who live around you don't know Jesus. Minimum. That's assuming the 13 or 14% who do attend evangelical churches are Christians, all of them. Which, that's gracious. We need the Lord of the harvest to work. So our priority needs to be what God's priority is, which is dependent prayer for God to work and to raise up workers for the harvest. Second lesson, God's power, God's power in our missionary and evangelistic work is made perfect through our weakness. You hear that? God's power in our missionary and evangelistic work is made perfect through our weakness. Look at verse 3. Go your way. So Jesus commands them, go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Now that is a bizarre statement. How many of you, if you were going to go out and assault a group of wolves, would send out lambs to do it? Man, there's a group of wolves. Let's send lambs over there to take care of that group of wolves. You wouldn't do that, right? That's craziness. And Jesus is saying to them, listen, I want you to go out and I want you to go. Go out there. I'm sending you as lambs among wolves. What is he emphasizing? Saying, you're, you're weak against these wolves. They'll tear you to shreds. You can't take on these wolves and win. The emphasis is on your weakness. You might be thinking, that's right. I am too weak. I am too weak to go out there and tell people about Jesus. I mean, how many of you guys really feel that way? Most of you, right? I'm not persuasive in speech. I don't know how to answer people's questions. Who am I? I'm weak. I'm unknown. I'm not a scholar. I'll just mess it up and look stupid and foolish. I'll be laughed at and mocked and rejected. I won't say the right thing at the right time. The people around me will think I'm a goofball. Let me, let me take the pressure off of you. You're right about that. Take the pressure off. You're right. It's true. All true. You can't do anything. You are weak. You can't say anything that will win anyone over. You're probably not very persuasive in speech. You likely can't answer people's questions well. You will probably bumble the whole thing and look really stupid and foolish. It's all true. Your friends will probably mock you behind your back and may reject you outright. On top of that, your personality may be a little dull and you may not be very attractive. I'm just going to tell you the truth. Because for some reason we think 
that if we just put good-looking, sterling personality, persuasive speech, intellectuals out there, everyone will suddenly become Christians. Witness whole ministries where a movie star becomes a Christian and the next day he's preaching. He's good-looking and popular. Everyone will listen to him. And you know what happens? Everybody thinks he lost it. He went nuts too with the rest of those Christians. So what if you're not good-looking and you don't have a very exciting personality and you're not very well-spoken and you can't answer questions very well and you're going to bumble the whole thing up when you talk about Jesus? So what? When has it ever been about you? When has it ever been about your ability? Even if you're skilled and scholarly and winsome and powerful, you still can't change anyone's heart. Your message may still be considered, in fact, will still be considered foolishness. This is the story is that God works through our weakness. It's the story of the Bible. Look at Moses, Exodus chapter 3, and I want to look there quickly. It's the second book in the Bible, so you'll be able to find it easily enough. Exodus chapter 3. I want you to see this. God comes to Moses. Moses is out in the wilderness. God comes in a burning bush. He's, there's a theophany, an appearance of God. Likely because of what Jesus says, a Christophany. In other words, likely the Son of God here is appearing to Moses and he's going to speak to him. And he's telling Moses, I want you to do something. And if you look at verse 7, he tells Moses this in chapter 3 of Exodus. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I've come to down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh. Now imagine this. Moses, you're some desert shepherd. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh to the most powerful ruler in the world. And I'm going to send you there, and look at what he's going to do. I will send you to Pharaoh, verse 10, that you may bring the people, my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. In other words, I'm going to send you the most powerful rule in the world, and I'm going to tell you, hey, um, you're going to say this, Moses, this is what you say. Pharaoh, uh, my name's Moses. I follow Yahweh. He's the God of all things, created heaven and earth and everything else. And, And here's the deal. He told me that I'm to tell you that I need to take the whole base of your economic system, all the Jewish slaves, and we're going to leave Egypt and just let your economy crumble behind, and we're going to go ahead and go so we can worship him out in the wilderness. Imagine that's the request. Moses knows Pharaoh's going to laugh at him, doesn't he? So what does Moses respond? Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. Who am I? Now, how does the Lord respond to Moses? How does he respond? Moses, you're good-looking and eloquent, and man, it's amazing how well you answer objections. When Pharaoh gives his objections from you taking away his economic system, you're going to have all the answers to his objections ready to go. Those are going to completely satisfy Pharaoh's heart because you're so smart. And then as soon as you walk out of there because of your smoothness, everybody in Egypt's going to break out in rejoicing that Pharaoh submitted to what you had to say. Pharaoh himself was going to think to himself, 
Wow, that's amazing. And if that doesn't work, Moses, you can take some pizza with you, maybe take a couple rock stars along who agree with the message, maybe a football player or two who think the message is good, and you will get this thing done. You can have a rally. You can have a cool band that plays the music loud. And what's going to happen is Pharaoh's going to be overwhelmed by the emotion and the electricity and the lighting and, and your incredible smooth speech. And he's just going to bend his knee and give you the people of Israel. And you can just leave. Moses, didn't you see your disc test? You're a DI. You're dominant and an influencer. You can really get this thing done. Moses, haven't you seen your spiritual gifts test? You are prophetic and a teacher and a leader. These people are going to follow you right on out, and Pharaoh's going to bend his knee to you. It's not what he says, is he? Is it? His response, verse 12, he said, but I will be with you. I'll be with you. Moses, not about you. Who am I that I should go, I'll be with you, Moses. It's not about you. It's me that's going to get this done. Moses isn't done objecting, though. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. You're nuts, Moses. Why are we not going to listen to you? You guys ever feel that way? I I tell people about Jesus, they're going to say I'm crazy. They're not going to believe me or listen to me. Moses still isn't quite getting it. The Lord comes in and says, Listen, Moses, I'm going to show up, and I'm going to tell them it's about me, not you. Then Moses objects again, verse 10 but Mo, of chapter 4. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. What's the point? Moses, I'll be with you. It isn't about you, Moses. It's about me and the work I'm going to do because I work through your weakness. And the Bible is a story of God working through the weakness of men. The weakness of Moses brings the people, God works through that to bring the people out of Egypt. Through the weakness of Gideon, God conquers Israel's foes. Through the weakness of David, he takes on Goliath. The story of David and Goliath isn't about this big, bold, brash young man who knows how to throw rocks really well. It's a story of God working through this weak, puny little person through whom everybody laughed at to overcome sin, and it's a picture ultimately of Christ. Because what happens with Jesus, the Christ, the King? How does he show God's power? How does he win the war? He goes to a cross. And he's on the cross in weakness, demonstrating the power of God over principalities and powers, over sin and the grave. It was in the weakness, in weakness, that God's power was most clearly demonstrated in history. The weakness of Jesus on the cross. And that's upside down from what the world says. And that's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 can say that it's foolishness. I I want you to hear what he says there. You don't have to turn there, but I want you to hear what he says there. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, 
It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God's power is made perfect in weakness. And you might ask, but, but so are you saying that God will work through me in spite of my weaknesses? Is that what you're saying? You're saying he'll work through me? I've got all these weaknesses. I'm slow of speech. I'm not good at these things. I don't even feel like I have any spiritual gifts. I think when I scored out on the disc test, I scored out with no personality, just nothing, flatlined across. What Are you saying that, that I'm gonna, I, I, God's going to work in me in spite of my weaknesses? I'm not saying that at all. If you think I'm saying God will work in you in spite of your weaknesses, you're not hearing me. I'm saying that The Bible never says God will work in you in spite of your weaknesses. What the Bible says is that God's power is made perfect in or through our weakness. Do you hear that? It's not like God will use your strength in spite of your weaknesses. God's power will be made perfect through your weaknesses. I learned this in this church as a church planter. When you plant a church, you don't need a major life crisis early on, right? And I had a major life crisis in my own family that took me in and out of the pulpit for about seven months. And I thought, oh my gosh, it's all going to fall apart now because my strengths are no longer going to be on display. It's just going to be all my weakness. I have nothing to offer. In fact, the congregation is going to have to carry us because we're in trouble. What's God going to do now? Arrogance, arrogance, arrogance. You know what God did? He grew the church. church did better numerically and financially the whole time. People were getting saved. People's lives were changing. People were getting grace at a depth that that I had not seen them grasping the concept of grace before, all through my weakness. And it it sort of shut me up about my strengths. I found out real quick that God's power is made perfect through weakness. It's precisely your weakness that God's power is going to be at work in evangelistic and missionary activity. So stop trying to explain to God why you can't do it. He already knows you can't do it. That's a given. And he says, you go make disciples of all nations. And you say, but, but who am I, Lord? I can't do it. And as he said to Moses, he says to you, what does he say at the end of the Great Commission? And surely I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. It's all you need. You open your mouth about Jesus and God will be with you. He will give your mouth what needs to be said. Third lesson, God's provision is to be trusted in our evangelistic and missions work. God's provision is to be trusted in our evangelistic and missions work. Look at verse 4. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, 
no sandals, and greet no one on the road. That just sounds rude, doesn't it? Go out there, don't take anything with you, and be rude to people. That's not what he's saying, okay? So, so let me go over this. Jesus, Jesus is basically telling them to travel light. Don't take an extra pair of sandals. Don't try to provide for yourself. Trust to God's provision for you. When you get out, you will find people who will receive the message of the gospel. They'll become Christians. They will care for you. This is a culture in which hospitality was quite well known. You'll walk into their house. They'll provide for you. You don't need to provide for yourself. The Lord will provide for you through his people that he's calling out to be saved. So don't worry about providing for yourself. I want you to recognize the urgency of the situation. Why do I say the urgency? Because he tells them, greet no one on the road. What's that about? In this culture, when you greeted someone on the road, you would stop and spend a long time talking to them. It isn't like walking by and saying, hey, how are you, right? We don't even do that anymore because that might take time out of our schedule. That isn't how this worked. Worked there, okay? These people would spend a long time when they greeted on the road. A long time. And what he's saying is, listen, this situation is urgent. You need to go out and tell these people about this right away. Don't be distracted. I want you to be singularly focused on the mission I've given you. You don't need to spend your life being directed, by, or distracted, excuse me, being distracted by worldly concerns. You don't need more money. You don't need more stuff. You don't need more time spent pleasing people. You need to give your undivided attention to making Jesus known and trust the Lord to provide everything else for you. Jesus says it this way, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Put your attention there. Fourth lesson, I gotta hurry. Fourth lesson, God's peace being brought to his people is our work. God's peace being brought to God's people is our missionary or evangelistic work. Look at verse five. Whatever house you enter, First say, peace be to this house. Now, that's like a benediction. You guys know what a benediction is? At the end of the service, I give a benediction. Bene, meaning good. Diction is a saying. It's a good saying. I'm pronouncing a blessing of some sort. What he's saying is when you go into the house, pronounce a blessing. Peace be to this house. But he's saying more than that. So I don't want you to hear just an empty blessing. It's not just like, peace be to this house. Like, hey, how are you? Okay? It's a little bit more than that. Or it's a lot more than that. So I want to hear, hear what it says. Verse 6. And if a son of peace is there, in other words, that's someone who receives your offer of peace, which I'll talk about what that is in a minute. If he's there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it'll return to you. In other words, if he rejects your offer of peace, which I'll talk about in a second, then it, then it will return to you. And remain in the same house, that's the guy who receives you, remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. In other words, they'll provide for you. Do not go from house to house. In other words, you're not supposed to hop around looking for better provisions. I don't like what this guy gave me for lunch. His bed's not the most comfortable. Oh, that guy's house looks nicer. I'll jump over there. This, the point is that you're not out there looking out for yourself. Whenever you enter, verse 8, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Verse 9, heal the sick in it. And say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So we're supposed to give this benediction of peace to those who receive us because they're receiving our message. But what's the peace about? It isn't just a polite saying. It's the peace that men need with God. We've become God's enemies due to our sin against him. We've become his enemies due to our sin against him. And God sent his son Jesus into the world 
to reconcile the world to himself, to bring peace between God and man. God sent his son Jesus to the cross to become the enemy of God on the cross in our place so that through him we might become friends with God. Hear that? I don't know that you recognize that, but in our natural state as sinners, God cannot relate to us. His justice and condemnation is upon us because we're sinners and he's holy and he can have no part with evil. And God wants to relate to us because he loves us and so he sent his son who never sinned who was always his friend, and he sent his son to become his enemy on the cross in our place. In order for God to relate to sinners like you and me, what God has to do is kill his own son just to relate to us. What does that say about you and me, incidentally? It isn't good news about us, is it? But it's incredibly good news about him because he would have his own son crucified to save us. And so he sends him to the cross to be his enemy in our place so that we can be his friends. And that's our task, to go from house to house telling them about Jesus, to go from town to town, not to go from house to house trying to accumulate more for ourselves. See, we're supposed to be about making Jesus known so that men have peace with God. That's why Jesus says to proclaim the kingdom and heal the sick. We're there to tell people that God is in Christ reconciling the world to himself, and we're to show them this reconciliation through caring for their physical needs. We proclaim it to them, and then we show it to them through caring for them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 and following, Paul addresses this ministry that we have where he says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, are you in Christ? If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, the new has come. The old has passed away. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, listen to what he gave us. If you're in Christ, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's the thing. We were in this old, dead creation. That's who we were, enemies of God, sinners. And God reconciled us to himself through Jesus, through his son, and we became a new creation. Now walking with him, now ambassadors of Christ, now sent with the message to implore the world to be reconciled to God through Christ. To point out to the world that God didn't count your trespasses against you if you're in Christ because they got counted against Jesus. Therefore, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, be sin for us. So that in him, through faith in him and being united to him, we might become the righteousness of God. That's the message we take out to the world. We're ambassadors carrying that message. And what do ambassadors for a particular nation do? 
The ambassadors don't go out and represent themselves. They go out and represent their nation. And we're ambassadors for God's kingdom. We're ambassadors of Jesus, and our whole lives are being directed to representing him. We're to live for him and his message, not for us. Fifth lesson, God's penalty for sin will increase on any who reject you in your evangelistic and missionary work. Do you hear that? God's penalty for sin will increase on any who reject you in your evangelistic and missionary work. Verse 10, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets. That's another. you enter a town and they reject you. Go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. What, what does that mean? That's bizarre. You go into the town, they don't receive you. Like they say, we don't want to hear about your message. You say, okay, watch. I'm going to walk into the town, declare to you, listen, I'm taking off my sandal. That's what they wore. That's why it's okay for me to wear it. Okay, I'm taking off my sandal, and now I'm wiping off the dust on my sandal, and I'm wiping off the dust on my feet against you. You know, most of us would be like, what's that about, dude? That's bizarre, right? Why did you do that? What, what, what's going on there in that culture? Here's the thing. In the first century, Gentiles, that's non-Jews, lived among the Jews. They lived among them. And what was interesting about them living among them is that the Jews, you know, all walked around on the dusty roads as as well as the Gentiles did. And the Jews started increasing the number of ritual washings and bathings they had. And here's why. Because Gentiles walked in their dirt and contaminated their dust. And so as the Jews walked in the dirt, they got the contaminated dust from the Gentiles onto them. And so they had to wash off the contamination. So that what they were saying when they were washing off the contamination of the Gentiles is, they have no part with us. They're unclean. They're not part of our people. They're not God's people. They're some other people. And so when Jesus tells them, when you go into that town, if they reject you, wipe the dust off of your feet, what he's saying to them, declaring to them is, you're declaring to them that you have no part with God's people. You're not one of his That isn't a happy message, incidentally. And the people in that place would have known what that meant when you did it. Nevertheless, you're supposed to go on, verse 11. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. In other words, dust your feet off, tell them you have no part with God's people. Nevertheless, the kingdom of God has come near. That isn't good news if you're not part of his people. That's terrifying news. I tell you, verse 12, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom. That's, this, that's the nation that was participating in what we now call sodomy. It'll be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Verse 13, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, a couple of wicked cities, the Old Testament, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, that's a city that Jesus did lots of miracles and teaching in. Will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Now, it ought to shock you right there that Jesus has just said that judgment is harsher for Capernaum and for Chorazin and Bethsaida than it is for the immoral pagans of Sodom or Tyre or Sidon. That should shock you. Sodom is the pinnacle of wickedness in the Old Testament. 
And Jesus says to a town in which he was living and doing ministry, it's going to be worse for you. You religious folks, it'll be worse for you than for that wicked, pagan, immoral city of Sodom in the day of judgment. Why is that? Because the self-righteous Orthodox person is even more abhorrent to God than the irreligious, immoral person. Those who have the revelation of Christ and yet reject him are far worse off than the immoral types who are ignorant of the truth of Christ. Hear that? Jesus may say, it'll be worse for you, Bakersfield, than it will be for Baghdad. I don't know. We have the revelation of the gospel here. Luke 10, 16. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Why is the penalty of these people increased for the rejection of Christ's messengers? Why? Because to reject Christ's messengers is to reject Christ's message and thus to reject him himself. And thus to reject Christ is to reject the Father himself. Well, so why would I want to tell people the gospel message if I'm potentially increasing their eternal penalty? That would be a question you ask. Because hearing the gospel is the only way they can be saved. Make no mistake, they are condemned already. If they don't turn to Jesus, their condemnation is coming swiftly. And if you don't tell them about Jesus, then they may never hear and thus never come to salvation. And you might be saying, but let's be honest, I'm still afraid of being rejected by people if I tell them about Jesus. I'm still afraid of being rejected. That may all be true, but I'm still afraid. Listen, when you go out proclaiming the gospel to others and they reject you, you need to understand that they're rejecting the one who sent you. Their failure to listen to you is a failure to listen to him because you're his appointed mouthpiece of the gospel. If you know that, you're his appointed mouthpiece of the gospel. Keaton, you are God's appointed mouthpiece of the gospel. And so are you, Pam. And so are you, Stan. You're God's appointed mouthpiece of the gospel. Are you using your life to be Christ's ambassador or is it being spent on yourself? How's your life being spent? Last point, last lesson. God's provision. Well, let me put it this way. Your position in Christ, your position in Christ should be your greatest joy, not your effectiveness in ministry. Hear that? Your position in Christ should be your greatest joy, not your effectiveness in ministry. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 17. And I'll go over this ver- these verses next week, but let's, let, let me just hit on briefly. The 72 return with joy. They've gone out on their mission. They come back triumphant. It's gone well. They return with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power, and, excuse me, over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
See, it's easy to get caught up in what you do well or your gifts or your success or your abilities or to get discouraged in what you fail to do well. In other words, it's easy to find your joy or to lose your joy based on your performance. And while you can certainly be thankful and find joy in things that are going well, ultimately your joy should be found in Jesus. What is better news than this? If you're a believer in Jesus, then you know that your name is written in heaven. How does it get better than that? To have Jesus declare to you, if you're in me, your name is written in heaven. No great missionary endeavor, no great ministry success, no great any of that stuff is any more important and life-changing and joy-inducing than the single fact that your name is written in heaven. You deserved only justice, but God loved you and gave his son for you so that you could be forgiven for your sins and washed clean and declared holy and adopted as God's children. You did nothing to earn it. You only receive it. You could do nothing to lose it because if you are in Christ through faith, you're united to Christ. You're adopted as God's children in Christ, and he never rejects his son. You're a son of the Father. That's, I'm talking to you women, too, incidentally. That's a theological term. You're his children. And your name is written in his book in heaven. Therein is your comfort and security and joy. What could be greater than that? What could be greater than that? No successes in life can be greater than your position in Christ. No failures in life can remove from you your position in Christ. Your names are written in heaven. That's the good news. That's the news you proclaim to others. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would work through us and our congregation, that you would take the gospel to the nations through us, that you would raise us up, that we'd understand that we're ambassadors of Christ and that we would make your gospel known to those who do not know you. We need you to do this great work through us, Father, and in us. We can't do it apart from your spirit being poured out upon us and moving our mouths to speak. So we ask that you would, and we pray, Father, that whatever successes or failures we have, that, that ultimately our joy is in the fact that we're in your son, Jesus. And as those who are in him, it is our privilege, knowing that we're already your children, to be able to now take the gospel out and make your son known so that you might gather more of your children to yourself so that many would be saved. Pray that you do that great work here among us. You raise up more laborers for the harvest. In Jesus' name, amen.